Hello, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. So today I'm talking to Corey DeAngelis. He is the director of School Choice at Reason Foundation and is also an adjunct scholar at Cato Institute. And just generally speaking, the guy that you want to talk to if you want to talk about school choice, which is a conversation that's going to be happening this year, whether anybody really wants it or not, here we are, we have a global pandemic. And so now we have to discuss how exactly are we going to school our children this year? So my thoughts going into the school year, and I have not seen anything yet, even just in the past two weeks that us here in the Atlanta area have been in school, to make me feel any way otherwise is that for the 2020-2021 school year, and I'm also including the spring semester here too because I don't see things materially changing between now and spring semester, traditional schooling is just, it's not going to happen this year. It's either going to be some kind of a hybrid, completely online, depending on what your district decides. Even the schools that are trying to go full traditional right now, like obviously we had the infamous school hallway picture here in Dallas, Georgia, and that school actually coded that story. They had to shut down for two days because they had a COVID outbreak. So even for the schools that are trying to do traditional schooling, I just, I don't see how this is going to last the whole school year. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the particular location and the COVID risk in that location. And it also depends on the sector, right? Um, public schools are uh, less likely to reopen in person this fall. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I, I chalk it up to incentives that if you get your customers money, regardless of whether you reopen in person and provide a meaningful education and do so in a safe uh, manner, you have every you have very little incentive to reopen and do so. So um, you know, just the the way that I like to talk about it is you know if if a Walmart received your money each week without providing you with fresh or uh, fresh groceries or even any groceries at all, they would have very little incentive to actually reopen in person. Uh, and, but we don't have that in the private sector, right? We don't have that with the uh, private schools either as much. Um, so. You know, we're seeing two different responses from different sectors, and I think the difference is that one of these sectors gets your money regardless. Um, and then with the issue in Georgia, uh, that was a, I believe, a traditional public school in Georgia. Um, and you know, I think one of the main takeaways there is is not is not that it's because the school reopened. It's because the school didn't reopen in the in a safe manner, right? You had the picture going viral of all the children in, in the hallways, so they didn't have the social distancing measures in place. Um, and there, you know, you could imagine other ways that schools could uh, reopen in a more effective way and to prevent these types of outbreaks. But yeah, I think it, it really depends on if if the schools are going to do it right and if they're not. But we've seen. Um, reports from Education Week that 17 of the 20 largest school districts in the country, so 85% of the largest school districts in the country, are opening, uh, they're reopening for online only uh, instruction, so no in-person instruction. So that's what we're seeing from the public school sector. Um, and, you know, we're seeing a lot of protests also across the United States. Uh, we had a National Day of Resistance um, just uh, last week, I believe, 
10 teachers unions partnered up with the Democratic Socialists of America in their uh, their uh, press to call for safe, you know, demand safe schools was the name of the initiative. Uh, but then they called for a lot of political stuff as well. They called for a massive infusion of federal money, which uh, we all expected. But then they also called to ban their competition. They called to ban new charter schools, ban new private school choice initiatives. And they also called to ban standardized testing, which I'm not a fan of standardized testing myself, but it seems like this doesn't have a lot to do with demanding safe schools. It seems to be, you know, just getting whatever they wanted and, and uh, political uh, politically and then also trying to avoid any forms of accountability either from the bottom from the top down uh, through standardized testing or from the bottom up through allowing people to vote with their feet to their competition. Um, so yeah, we're seeing a lot of uh, pushback against reopening, uh, at least in the public school sector. The way I've kind of put it on Twitter at least is that the private sector and private businesses are fighting to reopen, whereas the public schools, or at least many of them, are fighting to remain closed. And again, the difference is one gets your money regardless. And it's interesting to see where in the country you have, especially on the public school level, where you have schools fighting to stay closed and where you have schools fighting to reopen. It's very much a as much as everything is now culture war and that just annoys the hell out of me because, I mean, we're talking about education here. We're talking about something that's very important. Like, can we not do this with education? But it also feeds into that whole thing of, oh, well, this whole thing is stupid. We need to reopen everything. And other people being like, no, everything needs to shut down. But and, and it's it's interesting to see how the teachers unions are reacting to this, too, because like you said, they had that day of resistance where we added in a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't have anything to do with COVID, but we want that. So let's just go ahead and try to ram that through here, which is what we do now always and forever. So, yeah. And, and what's interesting also that I left out is they called for police free schools and everybody that is in libertarian circles, or at least a lot of people know that I'm skeptical of police and believe that police have a lot of the same problems as the public school monopoly, because uh, police departments have a geographic monopoly, and there's no choice in the police sector. So uh, I think they have very little uh, accountability mechanisms built into the policing system, just like we have with the public school system. But at the same time, I can stay, take a step back and look and, and, and say that, you know, police-free schools doesn't seem to be like it's about, about this demanding safe schools, at least in relation to COVID risk. And if you think about their call to ban charter school and private school competition, that tells you right away it's not about safety, right? Because if you can have children spread out to private and charter schools, you spread children out across a, a higher square footage, that would lead to more safety and more social distancing. So since they're calling to prevent that um, spreading out of students to their competition, that tells you that this isn't really all that much about demanding safety for students. It seems to be, it could be partially about safety, but then they're also, uh, I think they overplayed their hand by kind of putting in all of their other political goals and, and monopolistic goals into this uh, call to demand uh, safe schools. And I just want to be clear really quickly that, you know, uh, I'm seeing, I'm also seeing there's two sides of this debate. One side is saying, Oh, reopen all the schools. We need to open the schools. The science says that we should open the schools. The CDC director says that we should open the schools. Then, yeah, the other side essentially saying, 
oh no, I don't, I don't want to, you know, go back to work, and I, because I'm fearful for my life. We're seeing protests uh, that are pretty morbid in nature, where uh, teachers' unions are instructing their members to write fake obituaries to their governors. We saw this in uh, uh, Arizona. We saw in Milwaukee. Uh, teachers protesting uh, associated with the teachers unions out there uh, by creating fake uh, tombstones. We saw in New York uh, protests, uh, teachers creating fake coffins and body bags. We saw that in D.C. as well, where teachers uh, groups put fake body bags outside of the public school offices to prevent or protest reopening, which later the mayor, Mayor Bowser, uh, in here in D.C., uh, actually pushed back the start date all the way back till at least November 6th. Um, uh, and they may push that back even further uh, in, uh, here in D.C. And when questioned about it by a reporter, the mayor um, uh, responded that, uh, you know, the reporter asked how much the teachers union had to do with it and how much health issues had to do with it. And the mayor responded that, yeah, you, you know, it, it's not only the, the health concerns that are that are pushing these results. And she kind of hinted that the uh, workforce, they were having significant workforce issues, which implies that the teachers unions had something to do with pushing back that start date here in DC. But I wanna just point out that I'm on neither end of this spectrum. I'm more so, you know, local, you know, local uh, you know, risk for the virus and, and, and local decisions differ and local risk tolerance differs um, uh, by different community in the United States. So I don't think we should force all schools to reopen. Uh, I don't think any teachers should be forced to uh, return to schools. I think the decision should be at the individual school level that the school should be able to make that cost benefit decision themselves based on their local conditions. But at the same time, we should take that logic a step further and allow each individual family to make their own decisions for their individual children. So an individual school district should be able to open or not for in-person instruction, but at the same time, the family should be able to take their children's education dollars to the school that will serve them in the best way possible. And if that's in the public school, that's fine. If the public school reopening plan works for, the, for that individual family, they should be able to keep their children in the public school system. But uh, we need to uh, allow individual families to be able to choose a private school option or a micro school option or a homeschooling option. Let's say they're just fearful for uh, in-person learning period, whether that be in a public school or a private school, well, if the money followed the child, we'd allow less advantaged families to exercise these micro schools and pandemic pod options. And for the listeners, just so you know what a, a pandemic pod is or a micro school, it's essentially five to 10 children get together in a household to essentially uh, outsource the process of homeschooling so that myself as a parent, I can still return to work this fall uh, which is especially important for uh, you know p families and households that rely on two incomes, and then also single parent households uh, to, that need to rely on that income to provide for other services for their children. This allows uh, those families to uh, to outsource that process of homeschooling to another home, and they can, their child can get the benefits of homeschooling with the uh, you know in you know student centered approach and a and a small uh, kind of classroom of five to ten students. Um, and I think that's a good way to get the benefits of homeschooling, but too many families cannot afford that option right now. And in the United States, we spend over $15,000 per child per year. So imagine if 
a significant portion of that funding follow the student to wherever they're getting an education. You get 10 students together in a household, that's over $150,000 in revenues. It wouldn't all go to the teacher, but let's say two-thirds of that went to the teacher because of a third of overhead cost. That would still be about $100,000 going to the teacher, so that could benefit the teachers. It's much more than what teachers make in the school system today. Uh, by higher salaries, they'd have smaller class sizes. The teachers would have more autonomy in that setting. And then obviously that would benefit the families by giving families additional options. So I think that's the, the way forward. A lot of people if, and, and outlets, if you just Google pandemic pods and you go to the Google News and look, scroll down all the stories, 90% of these stories are negative and they're talking about inequities that result from pandemic pods. But then they miss the obvious solution to allow the dollars to follow the child so that less advantaged families could exercise these options as well. Because it's true that families are spontaneously coming together. It's a really interesting lesson in, in spontaneous or emergent order where the public school system, the government-run school system, is not providing a service that is necessary for uh, a, a large amount of families in the United States. And since that service isn't been provided by the government, families are coming together spontaneously and seeking out alternative options to do right for their children. And, you know, Washington Post, New York Times, Salon, Good Morning America, Texas Tribune, on and on and on, all of these articles are saying that this would lead to inequities. And that may be true, but that, one, isn't a good argument to take away the freedom of families to do right for their own children. And two, they're missing the obvious solution. Well, then give the money to the child that would have went to the public school since the public school is not reopening. Since the money is for educating the child, it should follow them to wherever they're getting an education. And look, that would allow less advantaged families to have these options too. And so it would fix uh, this inequity problem that too many outlets are pointing out but not realizing uh, the obvious solution. I think, and I try to find silver linings wherever I can in our current COVID crisis. I think one of the ones that is going to emerge is now that we are in this situation where parents are going to have to start making choices about how their kids are educated. It is going to kind of force this school choice conversation because now it's a situation where obviously if your school district has gone fully virtual, now you have to decide, okay, what do I do with my child? I mean, obviously, if your child is of a certain age, they have to have adult supervision. So you have to figure out some place for them to have the adult supervision, whether it's you do it or you hire tutors or daycare or you go into a pod. If it is a situation where your district is giving you the option, now you have to really like think about it, like, OK, do I send my child to traditional school? Do I do this online? And it, it's kind of one of those where. Not to say that parents don't think about the schooling of their children, obviously they do, but not necessarily in this kind of granular way of having to think about school choice in this where it you really have to make a choice this year, like you have to make this decision for your child. So now you kind of have to think about it maybe a little more than your average parent is used to having to think about it. Yeah, well, that's interesting that you mentioned daycare. Well, the daycares are reopening, but the schools are not allowed to reopen. Why is there a difference there? And I think, again, from what I, with what I started with, that the incentive structure is different. The daycares are typically privately provided, and they know that if they don't provide you with a meaningful service, that they're going to go out of business. Same thing with the private schools. And so I think that's why we're seeing the difference between the sectors. The public schools get your money regardless. They can they get your money through the property tax system. No one's getting a property tax rebate. I just got my property tax bill here in DC. We spend over $31,000 per year 
per child in the D.C. public school system, much more than the national average. And they're not opening till November 6th, but people are paying the same amount in the property taxes for something that should cost a lot less uh, to, to, to operate. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting just to, to point out that, well, the, the, and, and some places in the United States, this is even more absurd, in places like Arizona, from what I've seen so far, there are districts in Arizona, California, Texas, I've heard about districts in New Hampshire doing this, and so a lot of states are doing this where they're not allowed to reopen the schools, so they're not reopening the schools yet this month in August, but they're they are reopening them. They're reopening some of the elementary schools. In Wisconsin, for example, they have reopened 15 different elementary school buildings, and this is their plan. They're going to not call it schooling. They're going to call it child care, and they're going to do the distance learning in the physical elementary school buildings. And then, by the way, they're going to charge the families extra in some places up to $210 per child per week on top of what the families are already paying for the public school system through property taxes. So they're essentially double dipping here uh, in this situation all, all across the country. It's super weird. And I think it's unconstitutional if you had to ask me one way or the other, because every state in the United States has some provision for a, per, a free public education. We can't really say you're doing that, one, if you're not providing an a, inadequate education, if you're not actually reopening the schools, but then also if you're charging people out of pocket uh, essentially twice, you know, pay, charging them once at the property tax system and then again, you can't really say it's a free public education. And, and look, it's it's not free. We all know that. But it's uh, in these constitutions, it's it's it's, it's recognized as being taxpayer funded when when they say free in the in these constitutions so i would argue this is unconstitutional stuff going on all across the united states we have uh, aclj has actually sent three or four legal letters already to a school district in arizona gilbert gilbert public schools for doing this they're charging you know like 160 dollars per child per week for something that families would have already gotten they're calling it something else they're just calling it daycare to make it okay and it's like, okay, well, if you if you just change the name, is it, is it make the virus go away? Is it is it all of a sudden safe now? And especially if you can charge your customers twice. Just imagine if a private school did that. If you 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 paid you know ten thousand dollars or fifteen thousand dollars for private school tuition for the year, and the private school turns around and said, oh, we're not going to issue you a refund. We're going to keep your money. Oh, and you know. We're not allowed to open the schools, but we're still going to open our schools. We're just going to call it a daycare. And by the way, if you, I'm not going to give you your money back, but if you give me an additional $15,000, then I'll serve your children and, and provide them with an in-person education. People would look at that and say that that was ridiculous and call that extortion, rightfully so, because regularly in the market, if they don't provide the service, they need to give you that ten dollars to $15,000 back. But what we have in the public school sector, they get to keep your property tax funding for your child, and then now they're asking families to pay in addition to that. So there's a bunch of crazy stuff going on in the U.S. when it comes to that, and there's a lot of legal inquiries being made to ACLJ and other uh, institutions. Another place in California, um, I forgot the name, it's the American Center for, Lib for Liberty or something. It's has, I think it has those three words in the name of it, but they filed a lawsuit against, I believe, the governor of California for similarly not providing a an adequate education at this time because they're not reopening the schools for the families, um, um, and they're not providing, you know, like pandemic pod options. They're not adapting 
to the scenario to, to be able to provide an adequate education to families. So we're seeing lawsuits um, all across the country right now, and it's a really interesting thing uh, to watch. And look, um, I think I think this is the time that people are reevaluating what the school system should look like overall. I think they're reevaluating the factory model of schooling in general and and understanding that children don't actually learn really well like this. Um, if you think about how people learn anytime they're not in formal schooling, um, you know, how do people learn before the age of five? How do people learn after the age of 18? How do you and I learn? Well, we we get a book off the shelf and we read about the thing. We go onto the internet and look up uh, YouTube videos or TED education videos. You can go on Khan Academy and look up how how to, you know, uh, you, can, you can learn whatever you're interested in. And it's really based on that individual person's self-interest. And I would argue that if that interest isn't there, you're not actually going to learn the material anyway. And what how we structure the school system in America today is it seems to be more about, um, you know, just getting people to do what they're told to do. It's more about obedience training. Um, and, and yet, you know, just the setup seems to be more conducive to just memorization and not true learning because learning is facilitated through individual self-interest. And that's how people actually get motivated to learn things and truly learn it instead of just memorizing it and regurgitating it on a test. And look, I did pretty well in my K through 12 government run school growing up. Um, but I also realized that one of the reasons I did so well is because I was really good at memorizing things and I could regurgitate the information on a test. And even, even through the K through 12 structured school system, it seemed to me that most of the learning still happened at home when I was reading the stuff before class so that I could uh, go in, into the class and regurgitate that information to the teacher so that I could sound like I was a smart person just for being prepared for the class. So I think, you know, even looking back to the K through 12 education system, I think a lot of that learning for a lot of people happens outside the system as well. Uh, one second, I don't know if you could hear what's going on in the background, but my dog is, <laughs> he loves to start playing with his toys, the squeaky ones for sure, uh, especially when we start of course, having a conversation. Of, he oh must my be God. part of the podcast. He's, and he loves being part of the podcast. And sometimes I'll let him do it because he'll stop, but he, he can't hear me. He's deaf. He's turning 15 this weekend. Okay. So uh, he's uh, getting up there on age, but I'll continue with, um, yeah, people are reevaluating the education system, and they're not just reevaluating the factory model of schooling, um, which, you know, we have a lot of data suggesting that. If you look at EdChoice, for example, they did nationally representative surveys since March, every single month through July, uh, of families and asking them simple question: uh, what What are your views on homeschooling, and how have they changed as a result of COVID nineteen? And they could respond more favor, you know, much more favorable, somewhat more favorable, somewhat less favorable, uh, much less favorable. And each time they did the survey, families were over twice as likely to say that they had more favorable views of homeschooling as a result of COVID-19 relative to the amount of families who said that they had a less favorable view of homeschooling as a result of COVID-19. So some families are, you know, experienced some form of homeschooling or home-based education. <clears throat> during the spring when schools locked down. But I would argue that's 
the worst possible form of home-based education that could be possible. Everybody was kind of involuntarily thrown into it at the last minute. Uh, and a lot of stuff was closed down. You can't really go to the theater or other community centers to get a lot of the socialization benefits that you could in normal day homeschooling. So this is the worst case scenario for homeschooling, but people were still reporting consistently that whatever they experienced made them feel even better about homeschooling <clears throat> as a result of their test drive of home-based education in the spring. And then most recently in July, there, if you look at the graph from EdChoice, the increase in favorability was even much higher than before. Um, and I can share that in the show notes if you'd like. But uh, we're seeing surges in homeschooling interest. You look at a Google Trends search. If anybody wants to go and search on Google Trends, just type in the word homeschooling. Look at the past five years. The peak interest in uh, homeschooling over time just happened in July. So people are seeking these alternatives. People are going into Facebook groups to search for Pandemic Pods, one group in particular based in the Bay Area, uh, just over a about a month or so span, they've already gotten over 35,000 members seeking out these alternative options. So people are looking for these options. People are saying they like homeschooling better now. And if you just look at the anecdotal evidence on social media, I think some of the reasons for people liking this uh, experience they had with homeschooling was because they were reporting that their children were less stressed out that their children were happier, less anxious, that the children were learning more and more engaged with their learning and, and, and learning more in a shorter period of time. Um, and so I think people are figuring out that schooling doesn't meet, need to be so structured and you know, schooling could actually be antithetical to, uh, uh, to, to real education and that education should look at how it looks any other time of our lives when we're actually trying to learn something should be uh, individually driven, so student-centered um, in, in K-12 through education as well. So I think people are seeing that. And then also we're seeing a lot of data from different states of families actually unenrolling their children from, I don't know how he, I don't know how he got that toy. <laughs> I just blocked it. I'll be right back. He's, he, he needs the attention, right? He's like, he knows I'm over here talking and he's like, yeah, come listen to me. Okay, but there's also there's also a lot of data coming out of families actually unenrolling their children from the public school system and making the explicit choice to file for homeschooling this year. For example, in North Carolina, back in the beginning of July, the government website actually crashed because so many families were filing and committing to homeschooling on their government website, which I think is pretty strange that you have to go on a government website to intend to, to, to homeschool. But regardless, you know, they had these tracking systems in place in different uh, states. And this is what happened in North Carolina. The government website crashed. And North Carolina already had a lot of people homeschooling. That's the state with the highest percentage of homeschoolers historically. I believe it's about seven or eight percent of the school age population in K through 12 schools in North Carolina was already homeschooling their children before the pandemic. The second place state uh, is only about three and a half percent. So North Carolina is an anomaly when it comes to percentage of homeschoolers. And if you look at the national average, it's also close to that second place state, which is about three percent of the school age population was homeschooling before the pandemic. But then look, there's other states. Vermont has seen a 75% increase in homeschool filings from the same time last year. 
Nebraska has seen a 21% increase in homeschool filings from the same time next year. And some, and some counties have seen much higher increases from the same time last year, including Maricopa County, Arizona, has seen a 229% increase in homeschool filings from the same time last year. So, you know, uh, we don't have systematic data from the entire United States, but whenever this information is coming out from different states, we're seeing huge upticks. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because people are just happy with uh, homeschooling and maybe they just really want to make the switch and they like it. But then also it's because the government school system isn't providing what they need this year, right? So they're finding alternatives. And a lot of families saw that the virtual education that was, you know, was supposedly happening in the spring either didn't happen at all or, you know, you had some school districts like Arlington Public Schools in, in my area saying that they weren't going to provide any new instruction. They were going to provide review material for the rest of the year, starting in March or April, but they weren't going to provide any uh, new instruction. So it was all review material. And uh, so a lot of families weren't happy with that kind of stuff, right? And a, a, a more recent report from the Center for Reinventing Public Education examined a ton of different school districts uh, in the United States, and they found that one in every three school districts that they examined all, uh, did did not provide, or only only one in three school districts that they examined provided any uh, any uh, requirement for teachers to meet with their students each day and provide uh, virtual education. And fewer than half of the school districts uh, that that they examined um, actually required the teachers to even take attendance each day. And uh, you know something that I noted earlier is there's different incentives between public and private sectors. And even, you know, choice versus non-choice sectors, charters, which are public schools versus the traditional public schools. And we found in an Education Next survey that came out pretty recently, maybe a, uh, less than a month ago, Education Next did a nationally representative survey and asked families uh, in public schools, charter school, you know, traditional public schools, public charter schools, and private schools, you know, how often did their teachers meet with them? And they found that teachers in private schools and public charter schools were over twice as likely to meet with students each day than the teachers in the traditional public school system. And they also asked about satisfaction levels, how satisfied the families were with the response to the pandemic and the public charter schools and the private schools were had much higher satisfaction levels than the traditional public schools. I think it was relatively speaking uh, a 50% 50, 50 higher or more uh, satisfaction level relative to the traditional public schools in the private and the charter school sectors. So we saw better responses from the sectors that, you know, need to attract and retain their customers. And I think um, that makes sense to a lot of people that the charter schools and the private schools have an incentive to do a good job because if they don't, they know that their customers can walk and take their money elsewhere. Whereas the public schools, they have a near monopoly on um, your property tax funding and uh, they have strong monopoly power created through residential assignment. And I just want to point out that people are also re-envisioning school funding too. It's not just that they're re-envisioning the structure of education, homeschool versus factory model-based schooling. They're also thinking a little bit about school funding. And this might even be the bigger conversation here that the schools aren't reopening and the families are doing a lot of the work through either homeschooling or if they're seeking out private schools, 
and the money's staying with the school that's not reopening, that's not educating their child. And I think families are rightfully having a light bulb go off in their head, and they're saying, why is the school getting my child's education dollars for not educating my child? If I'm doing all the work, why don't I, I get some of the money? Um, and so people are re-envisioning how we should fund education, and I think they're rightfully understanding that there's no good reason to fund the system when you can fund the individual child instead like we do with essentially any other taxpayer-funded initiative, even in education. Just think about uh, Pell Grants at the higher education level and a GI Bill at the higher education level. The funding goes to the individual student and the student gets to pick where to allocate those dollars. They can pick a public university of their choosing, they can pick a private university of their choosing, they can choose a religious university that they want. The difference is the money goes to the person and instead of the money going to a building and then residentially assigning that person to the building. That would be like, uh, you know, if we, if we did it in higher ed the same way we do it in K through 12 education for low income students, it would be akin to saying, here's your Pell Grant. If you wanna take advantage of that Pell Grant, you have to go to your nearest community college. That wouldn't make any sense. Um, I think most people would find that ridiculous. I think most people would realize that the better way to do it is just fund the education directly, fund the person directly and allow them to have choice. We do the same thing with pre-K programs. A lot of the people who like Pell Grants and pre-K programs fight really hard against K through 12 voucher programs where the money follows the child. In pre-K, the money goes to the family. The family can pick a public or private provider of the pre-K. With food stamps, the money goes to the family. The family can pick Walmart, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, Safeway. You can, the difference is the money goes to the individual or the family unit, and the family unit can pick different providers of the service and I'm not making an argument whether we should have food stamps or Pell Grants at all. Uh, I'm just saying if we're going to have that taxpayer funding for that initiative, the better way to do it is to give the money to the person, not a building. It would be ridiculous for us to say to fund you know, food for everyone through the property tax system, which is how we do with K-12 education, and then to say, well, if you want to use this you know, food stamp money, you have to go to your nearest residentially assigned government-run grocery store. I think most people would think that that's absolutely ridiculous, and it would absolutely be a reduction in individual liberties and in, in forcing people to take the money that has been taken from them through the property tax system and use it at one government-run institution. And if they don't, they would have to lose all their food stamp funding. Just imagine if um, you can even think about it in, in the sense of so imagine if you're residentially assigned to your nearest Walmart, and if you wanted to go to Trader Joe's, you'd lose all your food stamps money, and Walmart would get to keep all your food stamp money. That wouldn't make any sense. So I think people are thinking about it through this kind of lens now that why doesn't the money – the money is supposed to be for educating the child. Why shouldn't it follow the child to wherever they're getting an education? There's no good reason to oppose that unless you're protecting a an entrenched monopoly, and that I think that is why – people who support Pell Grants at the higher education level and support pre-K choice at the pre-kindergarten education level, there's a disconnect when it comes to K-12 because there's a special interest involved in protecting a monopoly system in the K-12 system because the default in K-12 is that there's a system in place that gets your money regardless of your choice, whereas the default in higher education and the default in pre-K is that people can take their money where, where they want and there isn't an entrenched monopoly that keeps your money regardless of your choice. And so I think that's the only way to bridge this apparent logical inconsistency that I've pointed out 
when it comes to different levels of education and different funding mechanisms for education systems. And I think those are two conversations that are going to happen, especially if this does continue throughout the whole school year, as I'm expecting it to, especially on the financial level, if a parent is still having to pay their taxes and you're having to come out of pocket for whatever alternative education you choose for your child, well, now you're going to start asking, well, what am I paying for? Or even even the parents who go for like the virtual public school option. I remember back in the spring when we first started doing this, a lot of parents were kind of shocked to see like, okay, what exactly does my child do at school all day? Like, what do they do? And we're kind of like, oh, this is, I'm not super happy with this. And I know a lot of parents weren't happy with the product that they were getting in the spring. And to be fair, a lot of that was just kind of ad hoc. We are just going to try to figure this out. I think there was a feeling too that since this was the end of the school year, we didn't really have to like really seriously think about how are we going to deliver education because it's at the end of the school year. We can just kind of wing it and maybe figure it out over the summer. Although I have my questions as to whether anybody really gave this any thought over the summer. It's kind of feeling like they didn't really. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the factor of if you do decide to do some kind of alternative schooling for your child and say you keep your child at home. And all of a sudden your child that was a BC average in traditional school is now an AB average at home because they just, they're able to, if you're in like a quiet, still environment, they're able to focus on the reading or the lecture or doing the work. And all of a sudden their grades start to improve. Then parents are going to start asking, well, why can't I do this for my child all the time? Obviously this is a better solution for my child than going to Mm -hmm. traditional school. So I think these are conversations that are going to happen. Yeah. And it differs by individual family and what, you know, what they need uh, for their individual family situation, right? And so it, it may be that brick and mortar is what is needed for a particular family based on their needs. Um, and it may be that the virtual setting is found to be better for some families. And I think that's another reason to allow for choice because children have unique needs, families have unique situations and needs. And so just allow the money to follow the child and that would allow for um, them to be able to figure out uh, a solution for their individual family. There's no one-size-fits-all solution, right? And some things are going to work for good for some families and other things might work good for other families. And, and in some situations, the traditional public school may be so good that it's better than the private schools in the area, even if the money were to follow the child. And I'm more than happy to allow the families to choose whatever works for them, whether that be a public, charter, private a religious or non-religious school or a homeschool or micro school setting that that really is up to them and what works best uh, for their families. And I also want to point out that something that's really interesting that's emerging from this discussion is something that was the elephant in the room for far too long in the education discussion is that the public school system, I'm not saying it's the only benefit, but one of the main benefits of the public school system uh, is that it provides a significant amount of childcare and allows people to go to work full time. Um, and, you know, a lot of people didn't like when this was pointed out that public schools, you know, one of the main benefits was was a childcare service or daycare service. Uh, and then, you know, education was, you know, something that was supplementary as well. And I think people are starting to realize that, you know, uh, that's kind of the main problem that we're seeing here, right? That families need somewhere to have their children throughout the day, whether that's in a micro school or the brick and mortar school, 
in a public or a private school if they want to return to work. And so that's something that people are having to deal with. And, um, you know, we've set up the funding of schools around the reality that one of the benefits of schooling is the child care services. So we fund schools at a very high amount, partially because of that child care service benefit. If it was just all about information and knowledge, it wouldn't cost us $15,424 per child per year. We have information available at our fingertips that's essentially free. And if it was only about teaching knowledge, you can access that for free. And you can also access you know, some of the greatest minds in the world online for free. And if we were to be able to scale this up through online learning and to have one really good teacher teach tons and tens of thousands of children rather than a class size of 20, uh, then, you know, that would cost less on a per pupil basis because of economies of scale. And it wouldn't cost us so much. But the reality is a lot of that benefit is having a teacher there to watch the child to make sure they're safe throughout the day, which a lot of the times they don't do a good job at, at that. And that's not, to, not, that's not to say that the teachers aren't trying, um, but, you know, it's, far too often that there's a lot of bullying happening in the public school system and a lot of drugs that happen and, and gang activity that happens in the public school system and violence. There's reports from the uh, Department of Education most recently, I believe in 2018, was the latest report finding that uh, uh, I believe about 80% of schools reported some type of violent crimes occurring in the past year. And another Department of Education report estimated that one in every 10 children would experience sexual misconduct by the educators themselves. So um, far too often is, is it's uh, by the time that those children reached high school is, is where that 10% figure came from. So it's through the entire K through 12 experience that they, they might um, experience that. Um, but uh, look, it's, it seems to be that the public school system far too often fall short when it comes to providing a safe environment for students as well. But regardless, in theory, at least, the benefit of the, one of the main benefits, supposedly, for the public school system in, in certain locations is that you can keep the child safe throughout the day and, and allow the parents to go to work. Um, but, you know, you have some teachers on social media and other groups uh, responding to the reality that, you know, they're, they're not wanting to return to work in person. Their response is, no, I can still work um, online and I can provide the benefit online. But the reality is taxpayers would have never increased spending this much if the only benefit of the school system was a virtual education, because they could do that at a much lower cost. Um, and so we've set up this system and this payment structure and this staffing in a way that has been reliant upon the, real, you know, uh, the reality of how the school system worked in the past. Um, so yeah, you know, um, <laughs> that's not a really legitimate argument because if you're gonna make that argument, that is uh, pretty much an argument to reduce the funding in the school system if it's not gonna provide the benefits that it was providing before. Um, so yeah, it's um, an interesting discussion to say the least that's going on right now in the school system, but I think people are really, uh, you know, I think this is like the moment for uh, re-envisioning how schooling should look like and education should look like, if schooling even plays into that conversation. We have people looking at things like unschooling uh, to provide a true education to your children. Uh, but then also people are really reconsidering 
this weird funding system we have in K through 12 education where the money goes to the building regardless of the satisfaction levels of the customers and regardless of whether the child even goes to that building and attends that particular school. Uh, so people are seeing that. I think, I think people have seen this historically for a long time, that the school system might not be doing a good job. And if you're homeschooling, you're not getting any of your child's education dollars back. And if you send them to a private school, you're essentially paying twice, once through the property tax system, and then again, through out-of-pocket expenses. But it's really becoming obvious now. The schools aren't even reopening, and they're getting to keep your children's education dollars. And I think that's really pushing people over the edge to re-envision and, and, and call for, you know, re-envision the funding structure and then call for changes to that funding structure to allow the dollars to follow the child to wherever they're receiving an education. And, you know, look, it, the money should always follow the child to wherever they're getting an education, but it becomes even more obvious if the school's not reopening, it better follow my child to wherever they're getting an education. So you have people calling for this in, you know, in Congress. Uh, we have three different bills already in the past couple of months, you know, month, I believe, that, that have been put out. Yeah, in the past month. First was the School Choice Act by uh, Senators, uh, U.S. Senators Lamar Alexander and Tim Scott. And so they're calling for the stimulus money to have a certain percentage of that. They initially called for it to go to individual families. I believe now they're calling for it to go to private schools, which I, don't, I think that was a bad move on their part. They should have had it go to the individual families. But then Rand Paul, more recently, uh, I just interviewed him about this, called for uh, the School Act, um, which he calls to reallocate nearly all existing federal education dollars, which is about 70 billion, 60 to 70 billion dollars per year in the K through 12 education system in the United States, which is only about 8% of total education spending in the United States, um, but would reallocate those dollars toward to, from the institutions and then give it to the families if they want to choose an alternative option. And those, that funding could be used for homeschooling in his, in his setup. It's an education savings account. And so I think that's a really big step in the right direction if you look at Rand Paul's uh, proposal to fund students instead of systems. Um, so I think that's a step in the right direction. And then also Ted Cruz has proposed something similar uh, more recently uh, to fund students instead of uh, school systems. But I think his is a little different in that it's an increase in expenditures. So as a libertarian, I tend to favor uh, Rand Paul's proposal since it's not you know uh, just throwing more money into the system. It's reallocating existing dollars and, and not, you know, increasing taxpayer burden. And it's, it's uh, you know, a, really a libertarian proposal in that it's restructuring funding that's already being spent and not calling for more spending. And I hope it does gain some kind of traction in Congress, because like we've been saying, I think this is going to become a conversation. And another thing about traditional education that I think is going to come into play this year is people kind of realizing how much this is kind of a pipeline where, a lot of the conversation right now about opening schools is based around like elementary school kids because as of this recording, the data seems to suggest, and this is a whole nother ball of wax so that we can't get decent data to make decent policy, but it seems like they are the least susceptible to catching and transmitting COVID and they are also the group of students that needs adult supervision all day. Like you can't just leave them at home, so you have to figure out something to do with them. But then I started thinking about it and I started wondering what is going to happen this year with, say, like 
the high school juniors and seniors, like those who were planning on competing for athletic scholarships or academic scholarships? How are GPAs going to be weighted this year? How are kids that are in like AP and IB programs, how is that going to be administered? And all of yeah. this feeds into going into post-secondary school and going into college and that like there's there's a whole like there's a whole pipeline that people are going to have to start to think about like well why do we do it like this and do we have to do it like this like is there other options here well if you look at what happened in the spring so many school districts including seattle i believe uh called to and i think they implemented this policy to just give everyone an a which um you know, they're saying their argument was, oh, we shouldn't punish, you know, children for this tough time. Uh, but then the other side of the argument is, well, you know, what about the kids who really did get an A um, and re really would have gotten an A? Now you're pretty much um, uh, punishing them for doing a really good job throughout the year because you're pulling up everybody else's GPA and keeping their stagnant um, uh, and really, uh, you know, uh, could be harmful to those who work really hard throughout the year was, was kind of the other side of the argument. But then also, <clears throat> it really highlights the reality that the benefit, uh, as far as the labor market returns to schooling, at least in the sense of K through 12, you know, high school diploma, and then also, uh, you know, even bachelor's degrees and master's degrees, one of the main benefits, and Brian Kaplan has written about this extensively in his recent book, The Case Against Education, is that it's all about signaling, right? It's about getting that piece of paper. It's not about actually learning something. So the children were super happy about this. Oh, I don't have to do any work. And, and college students were, you know, um, if, if, if there was this kind of proposal, they'd be happy about this too, uh, that they'd get all A's for not actually learning the material and not actually doing the work because the students themselves, even high school students, know that the benefit is being able to take to the employer the signal of, I have a high school diploma from this school, I have a bachelor's degree from this school, and the, the employer, when they're making their em employment decisions, the, all they see is, well, you had a 4.0. They don't see, and, and you have a degree, they don't see uh, how much knowledge you have in your mind unless they can somehow tease that out through the interview or somehow tease that out through the portfolio you present to them and if they can somehow figure it out some other way and, and maybe through recommendations. But look, uh, it, it, you know, the reaction to uh, you know, the, the, the uh, idea that you're, you know, or the idea at least that you're not punishing students for just giving them an easy A for not doing any of the work that argument stems from the idea itself that, well, the benefit is the grade for them, right? The benefit is the grade and it's not, and the signal, it's not actually the, them actually learning anything. So they almost, they almost like tacitly admitted that schooling isn't about education. It's more so about signaling and that's where the benefits come from. And I would recommend any listener to check out Brian Kaplan's uh, recent book. I guess it's been a couple of years since it's since it's been re released. So not super recent, but very very good book, The Case Against Education, where he goes over evidence, and where he uh, actually estimates that about 80% of the returns to higher education, I, I believe, actually, yeah, uh, to education in general or schooling in general, comes in the form of signaling, not so much about skill ac acquisition. And I think the longer this situation wears on, the more popular that book is going to become. 
But to kind of wrap this up, and I do think I still, like I said, I think that this is going to continue at least for this school year. Um, if it is somewhat successful, if parents do decide that they like these alternative forms of education, do you ever put that genie back in the bottle? Like once it's, once this is out there, will parents still advocate for once, one day, hopefully we will not be in our current situation and we can go back to having something close to a normal life. Will parents still advocate for having these choices because it worked out so well. And I would even begin to wonder if maybe the next generation, if the kids that did engage in this experiment, once they have kids, they say, oh, well, I when I went to school, when I was your age, I did things online and I learned so much better than I did in the school. And so I wonder if this is going to start something more of a movement, kind of like what you're starting to see happen for like the work from home movement. Now that people are having to do this, like we've been told for the past what, 10, 15 years, like the work from home revolutions right around the corner, but now we're actually here and you have forced to do it. And a lot of employers seem to be moving towards doing that on a more permanent basis. Are we going to see the same thing in education? Yeah, I think people are going to fight for that. And the reality is when you give people a little bit of freedom, they fight really hard to keep it. And that's a good thing, right? We've seen this with school choice. We've seen this with the charter school movement. We've seen this with private school choice in places like Florida, where families fight really hard to keep that benefit once they get it. So in a sense, this uh, you know the silver lining here is that the new special interests in the education debate could be the families themselves, the customers of the educational services rather than a special interest group like the teachers unions that have hold over the monopoly of providing the services and getting the revenues for those services, regardless of the quality of those services. So we may see a shift there in that families start sticking up for their children at a much higher amount because they're seeing the real benefits of having that choice and having that form of education. I want to say that, look, the advantaged families are going to continue doing what they want, right? They have the resources available to them to continue the micro-schooling thing or the homeschooling thing because they can afford, or at least they're more likely to be able to afford these alternatives out of pocket. But the reality is in the current funding system of education, the people who are going to be left out and the people who are going to lose those choices if families don't fight hard enough are going to be the least advantaged in society. They're going to be forced to send their children back to the government-run schools, regardless of what of their say in the matter and what they truly want. So I think it's really important to point out that this essentially, you know, uh, uh, movement that we're talking about here would overwhelmingly benefit the least advantaged families because the more advantaged families are going to do what they see as a huge benefit, regardless of what happens to the funding structure of the education system. And so if we really care about equities in our society, we should really care about this movement and its importance for education of less advantaged families uh, as well. Uh, and so it's it's really exciting time to watch all of this unfold. And, but yeah, I do think that families will fight to continue to uh, be able to exercise these options. And the, and the best way to do that is to allow the money that's already existing in the system to follow the families to and the children to wherever they're getting an education. It could be a public school, private school, micro school, home school. Everybody should have these options, not this, not just the most advantaged families in society. Less advantaged families should be able to do that as well. The best way to do that is to fund the student, not the school system or the institution. 
Uh, because look, the, if we're going to fund it through the taxpayer system, the money isn't for propping up a government monopoly. The money is for educating a child, and we should fund education as if uh, we realize that reality. Well, at this point, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up because I think that's a good note to end on. So tell people where they can find you. Yeah, you can find my work on Twitter. Uh, if you want to follow me there, it's just my last name, first name. It's at DeAngelis Corey, but also my longer form articles can be found at the Reason Foundation website. So if you just type into Google Corey Reason Foundation, you'll be able to find my website there and a lot of my longer form uh, written works and, and some of my video interviews such as this one. All right. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me, Corey. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Corey and found it informational. I do think that this topic, the topic of education in this country, in our current situation, is going to be the conversation over the next couple of months as schools start to come back into session and parents have to start figuring out whether their districts are going fully online, whether they're doing hybrid, whether they're doing traditional, and having to make these choices for their kids and think about education in ways that maybe they hadn't really thought about before. But because we are in this pandemic situation, you're having to think about your child's education and what it is that they are actually getting and what are you getting for your money. And especially if you are in a situation where you are going to have to pay for alternative education for your child, what exactly, what are you getting for your tax dollars? And now that you're having to reach into your own pocket to pay for this, why isn't this being offset? And just generally thinking about the best ways to educate your child. And Corey pointed out, and I want to point out too, there's no one correct answer to this problem. And that is something that libertarians have said for a long time, is that there's no one correct answer as to how to educate children in the United States, because every child is different. Every child responds differently to different situations. Some kids may prefer traditional schooling. Some kids may prefer to do it completely online. Some may prefer a combination of both. Some may like going to pod situations. It, it's a really, it's, it's really just individual to each child. And hopefully that is something that parents will start thinking about more. And this is also something, obviously, that's going to affect millions of families across the United States. So I do expect this to be an ongoing conversation. So maybe we will revisit this in the future. But for now, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. So if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care and until next time.